lightning. Inspirational. Inspirational. Powerfully refining. Powerfully refining. And unapologetically controversial. Conversations with the Royal Impress. The entire world knows the secret of who you are. Now is the time to step into your queendom and become the Royal Empress that you're meant to be. One woman at a time. Conversations with the Royal Empress. Now Akima, she's the analytical Empress. Akima, she's the Empress that will challenge you. Now, straighten up your crown and be elevated through conversation. Conversation with the Royal Empress. Welcome back to Conversations with the Royal Empress. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 8. This is your sister, Dr. Hakima, and joining me is my sister and co-host of Royal Empress. You all know who she is, Akima. Also joining us is a very special co-host, my sister that I have had the pleasure to meet last year and fell in love with as soon as I met this sister. Her spirit is off the chain. Dr. Shanique Jones. Thank Hello, you. Now let me introduce our, our, our guest. This sister is a powerful sister doing some powerful work in our community. Dr. Shanique Jones is a wife, a mother, an inspirational author, a motivational speaker, educator, educator, and restorative justice practitioner. Author of 12, a memoir of my younger, a memoir to my younger self, and co-author of two publications. Okay. Ooh, that's a powerful resume right there, sister. I, I, I'm impressed with that. Very powerful. I want to uh, share with our audience our topic as well. Today we'll be talking about restorative justice. So our topic is, is there a need for restorative justice in the black community? So first, uh, Dr. Jones, if you could really go into defining what restorative justice is, because that's just not normal vocabulary that is tossed around in our community. Can you pretty much define what that is for us? Uh, yes, ma'am. So <clears throat> basically, when you think about us as individuals and look at it from a life application piece and not a theoretical framework or something that we just do in schools or the school to prison pipeline, it's about when we have situations where we've been harmed, how can we bring all shareholders together to resolve what their harm even consists of, being able to understand the why. Oftentimes, when we look at problems, we don't see people, we see problems. And so how can you learn how to humanize those who have been dehumanized or not even recognized as a human being in the first place. And so when we learn to get to the why, it's bringing all those shareholders together that was impacted by the harm together so we can have a conversation about what things need to look like and be very authentic in our approach and to making sure that that harm doesn't happen again. Right. When we think of, when we think of things that happen, it's always the, the act itself and not really thinking about, okay, well, how do we move past it? Mm-hmm. And so what is your, what, what would you say your role in that as far as make, making that happen or bringing that awareness to the community? What is your role in that? Yes, ma'am. So, you know, when you talk about being restorative, I, my approach to restorative justice is my own life story. So all the things I had to overcome from rape, sexual assault, cancer, homelessness, poverty mindset, 
um, mental illness, failed suicide attempt, teen pregnancy, and I, you know what I'm saying, I go on and on. And so because of that, those different things that I've gone through, I learned later in life that as much as I have regret the things I have went through when I had a poverty mindset, I don't regret it now. That everything I've gone through has helped me to help someone else so I can show compassion and show authentic um, empathy. And so my role as a facilitator and as a practitioner is being able to facilitate those processes to make sure voices are heard, read and body language, understand the, um, understanding where people are coming from, when it's time to take a break, um, when it's time to, like, when we resolve the issue, making sure that voices are heard in a way that we use a talking piece, we have a centerpiece and all these different tools that are used in the process of restorative justice that is used in the best way possible so it can be having an effective, positive, sustainable change for the people who are involved in that harm. Why do you think it's relevant for the black community? Black community, man, even, like, so give you a perfect example. And I, this is something that happened to me this morning. So I'm teaching restorative justice one-on-one through my company, through, uh, and I'm the founder of Purple Path. And so cohort one rolled out. I had a gentleman, a young black man, to enroll in a course because his mom was like, this is something you need. Fresh out of high school, going into, the, to, to, into his career. And so being able to show ways of how to handle conflict, because a lot of times, especially in the black community, it has gotten to a point where we move on and we don't confront the situation head on and we don't do it in the most effective way possible. And I'm just talking about us. And so a lot of times what ends up happening is people are holding these, uh, harboring these hard feelings and we already have, we already have the, this burden that we shouldn't have to carry in the first place. So all the things that are going on as black people, the last thing we need is to look at the person that looked like us and have this sense of resentment, especially when you talk about how it leads to, you know, if you ever heard of adverse childhood experiences and it shows how when you have all your, the higher your score is, is it shows that in adulthood, if you didn't handle those situations and have not healed from the things that happened in your childhood, then you go over and bring that over into adulthood. Now that's generational trauma, right? And so now you, you have all these unresolved issues that lead to obesity, that leads to alcoholism, that leads to promiscuity and all these different things. So if you talk about how to heal your temple, you have to first have to learn how to restore the temple in order to restore the temple you have to confront things for what the way they are and do it in a way that confrontation doesn't have to be negative confrontation could say let's get down to the nitty-gritty as to the reason why we're here so we can move forward because a lot of times it's just the simplest things the simplest things and so i was saying that i had a young man fresh out of high school mom signed him up for the restorative justice one-on-one course he took the course loved it so much went home talking about it that his father took it in the second cohort and now the uncle is in my third cohort. These are all black men eager. This man, the, the uncle calls me first thing this morning, like, doctor, uh, the class started today. I'm not really tech savvy, but I want to learn as much as I can because the way my brother and my nephew was talking about your course and restorative justice, something I've never even heard of as a 40-year-old man, I want to know what I can do so I can heal, help heal, heal myself and help heal my family because I'm the, the, I'm the patriarch of my family. And I was like, just think of that alone speak volumes so when you're talking about being restorative it's saying that we all we've all offended someone at some point in time we've been offended and so learning like what are your triggers what trauma do you need to overcome how does healing because healing looks different for everyone because for some if you have a poverty mindset healing say oh well let me just go have sex with everyone anyone that shows me any type of attention i'm finna get it in how i live or it's like man weed is so accessible 
that's just the gateway drug. Then you go from weed to popping pills, from popping pills to, you know, cocaine, from cocaine to heroin, and, and it just goes on and on. So you have to learn how to change that poverty mindset to a wealth mindset so that you can live a, a longer existence. That's okay. powerful when you, you said <laughs> that you had the, the three generations uh, of, of family members that were positively impacted by your class. And just to, as you shared, this is an impact on black men, which ultimately leads to impact on black women and impact on black children. I think about restorative justice. I, I, I also think about um, the legal system um, only because I know that there are restorative, pro restorative justice programs that are in the legal system now um, where there are judges and other social workers who've gotten together to have these programs. And so how does this relate, like with, with your class, um, how does that relate to the criminal justice system? Yes, ma'am. Thanks for that question. So I work with um, the Cook County Southland Juvenile Justice Council, the Illinois Department of um, Juvenile Justice. And so one of the things that I have helped in the South Suburbs for um, the Day Reporting Center, for those who may be unfamiliar, Day Reporting Center is where juveniles who have a case have to go to so often to um, report their, you know, anything that they've done. Have they found any job, you know, jobs? Have they, you know, how have they applied for jobs? Being able to have access to things that they may not have access to at home in terms of internet, meeting with their probation officer or their parole officer. And so at the Day Reporting Center, they had asked me some time ago to do some circles with the young men and women who had these juvenile cases out here in the south sub suburbs of Cook County area, right? And so one of the things I was explaining to them is, is that I have a facility that I can use. And the reason why I'm mentioning in another facility is that how can a person heal from a place in which they were harmed you know so you know and I don't want anything that the the young men and women because they are building trust with me I don't want anything that they said in this safe space to be turned and used against them and you know oftentimes what happened and, I, and I've seen it happen way you know too many times the manipulative system of the criminal justice system that's broken will turn around and make it seem as if that they're being they're encouraging you and empowering you to share and turn and use those same things against you. So one of the good things we were able to do is utilize a different space to have this safe space so they can start healing from the things that happened before they have a uh, criminal background and being able to ha use that where they get a certificate at the you know once they complete the program and then also being able to have certain things removed so it would never show up because you know a lot of times we say that juvenile cases are sealed but there are times depending on the age frame it's very tricky how somebody can do something at the age of 17 but they hold you until you turn 18 now you're an adult so you had a juvenile case now it's an adult you know adult case and it can get it can get complicated so with the the what I do appreciate about restorative justice and this broken criminal justice system is that oftentimes what will happen is, is that they give you an alternative to say, like, you can take this restorative route or we can take this tr uh, traditional criminal justice route. And if we take the restorative route, what we can do is we can meet so often with the social worker, the counselor, the therapist, the parole officer, and anybody else that's considered an internal or external resource to this young woman or man so that we can help you get back as whole as possible. So when you go before the judge and they show that this was authentic, it wasn't just something like case management, like I met with this person on this date at this time, and it's not very, um, it's not effective, but being able to show the different things in, ter in, in terms of change of behavior, in terms of how they see themselves, like what are their goals, their short-term goals, so they can stay focused and being able to connect them to someone that's going to be considered a mentor to, to make sure that there's a follow-up process. So with all these things put together and put into place and being restorative and getting down to the nitty gritty as to 
what what is the why not the who not the what not the how but the why why did you get into this trouble and then when you start to break down the why further and further you re you'll realize it's something that happened that may that we may not see associated to the harm but because there was a lack of understanding or a lack of you know if what you've been taught is to fight and you haven't been taught a proper way of how to have soft skills and how to communicate a message then therefore what do you expect um so what i love about it is that when they go before the judge oftentimes the case is thrown out depending on the, the severity of the case too so we're not saying that you know if it was a, a serious case in the matter of you know physical harm or someone was you know death occurred or someone was murdered whether how we may want to frame that language there are of course there are some repercussions and you have to you have to live with the consequences of your decisions but when there are minute things like stealing from out of the store but the person the young man or woman was still in deodorant that's the basic necessity not to justify that stealing is you know that stealing is okay but there's a reason why he or she may have stole that deodorant i'm just giving you that as an example because i've seen this happen someone is still in the basic necessity that they couldn't afford you know so yeah it's, it's a case-by-case -case scenario what do you see in terms of um the recidivism rate with people who come through the restorative justice program you know i'm and i'm and i love this question because uh, we live in a world of instant gratification and we live in a world that continue to dehumanize us and so oftentimes what you'll hear is you'll hear all the things that are going wrong you hear about the agitators you hear about the rioters you hear about the black on black crime but what you don't hear about is how that when we think about recidivism many of these young men and women are staying out of the juvenile justice system and then when the follow-up process when you look at the, the the numbers compared to when they had this juvenile case they didn't go into the adult criminal you know criminal system because someone stayed in that process with them someone was consistent in their life someone was seen as a role model in their life and it was because of restorative justice someone came along and said i see that i see you as a human being that's that's the part that's powerful because when there's a problem if you and i doc had an issue i might not see you as doc anymore i'm like oh that's that's old girl over there again i can't do her no more mm -hmm. but but what is it about you that i can't do because it's something about me you know it's about that accountability and when you talk about when you think about restorative justice about you know the abc's accountability building social capital competencies and relationships and community safety that's what it's all about and so when you think about the recidivism rates it's very powerful to see that how many of these young men and women and the younger they are so and it's, it's unfortunate that when you think about restorative justice i want everyone to know it's going to always be reactive because in order to restore justice that means something went wrong and so we're being reactive but what i do appreciate about the earlier that we are able to catch them and show them and stay consistent in their lives the better that, the better we all are you know i've heard uh just from my experience of uh, working in corrections dealing with you know men who are incarcerated much of uh there were many conversations we had with young men and just once they got to to a prison setting that was their first time ever getting some form of structure, some form of support, or uh, where they were first introduced to people who really, really cared about their growth and development. And so when you speak about those who, if they had that support system, they're less likely to go on to further a criminal career or to make a criminal career. It's just so true because so many of them that are incarcerated have heard them say, man, if I really had 
the support system that I have now, I don't think I would be where I'm at. Wow, it's very powerful. So what what do you what is what do you what role do you think restorative justice plays in dismantling the school to prison pipeline? Man, so uh full time, you know, I, I I've I've moved away from saying that I work because the work that I do is my passion, is my you know, it's my calling. And so I'm I'm I've always asked God to no longer allow me to work, allow me to be on assignment. And when the assignment is complete, then I move on. And I won't do myself a disservice to stay longer than my expiration date because oftentimes we, you know, we try to follow our own path and our path is not for us. To, it's for us to follow, but it's guided by God. Right. And so what I love about what I do, I full time, I'm the district coordinator for a school district in the South suburbs. And so what I do, I oversee all discipline processes. So if there's a situation, and I'll give you an example, I've seen it happen before where a young man or woman may be sleeping in a class and because the teacher does not have a relationship with that young man or woman, now she, that teacher sees that as a form of disrespect because that child has their head down in class. And so when the teacher addresses this child and the child is like giving them a little pushback, like I'm tired, I just can't do it today. Um, now they put out a class because they, they, it, the teacher see them as being disrespectful. So what I've been able to do is train my deans because, you know, and then it's the language too that we use because how many of us ever had to go to the dean office? It's not peaches and cream when you go in the dean office. It's usually something you did wrong or seen <laughs> or deemed as seen, you know, doing something wrong, right? Right, right? And so being able to train deans to be more compassionate and more empathetic and, and create these relationships so that they can advocate for the students who are being sent to their office to say that this child is seen as a problem and not a child is being able to break those barriers to advocate for their child so that child can go back into the classroom and also help bridge the gap between the relationship between the parents, the guardians, the student and, and the teacher so that we can start dismantling what we consider the school to prison pipeline. Because what happens is we are suspending our black and brown kids six times more than we are suspending our white students, right? And so it's about building relationship. It's about making sure, like we talked about defunding police and making sure that um, we no longer have SROs and uh, CPS. Now, what I will say to that is each school has its own special case. We can't just speak for everyone. So in the South suburbs, having our SROs, I have great relationships with our SROs, which is our school resource officers. And so with our school resource officers, they've been trained by me in restorative justice to understand that they're going to help advocate for their child. They're going to help advocate for that parent. We're going to make sure that parents are not being fined for that. Because if there's a fight in the school, what people fail to realize, the um, parents are fined anywhere from $250 to $500 because your child had a fight. Uh, yeah, and I know I, I had to pay that. <laughs> man, and, and, but, but think about, and sis, think about those who don't have the ability to pay that. Right. So now your child it has a juvenile case for something that happened in school. Dismantling the school the prison pipeline is saying that we no longer have these fines. This is like, I understand for the severity of a case, that's different. But if we talking about simple disputes where a couple of deaths got moved, I'm not saying we're justifying it, but there's a better way to handle things. It's about classroom management. It's about building relationships with the school resource officers. It's about being able to live in the communities in which you serve. Because if I live in 
Crete, Illinois, but I work in Harvey, Illinois, I'm not, I'm not connected. Even though they're in close proximity, they're like 25 to 30 minutes away from each other, but the culture and climate of Harvey is totally different than the culture and climate of Crete, Illinois. So when I see my students, they see me. They see Dr. Jones. We, we talking about hoodies. We talking about gym shoes. And then we could talk about whatever else you want to talk about because in order to meet the matter of the heart, you have to meet the matter of the mind. And, and it's reciprocal, like it's, it's twofold. It's, and you have to learn that each child, you can't look at everyone as a one size fit all. Every child has a different set of needs. And it's also being able to be present for the parents too, because sometimes you have to realize parents are human beings as well. They may have some unresolved issues that they've passed on to their child. So when you see their child with their head down, you don't know what kind of trauma they may have experienced, but they shouldn't be removed from that structural environment. Mm -mm. I'm just nodding my head because I'm in complete <laughs> agreement with everything that you are saying. And uh, yeah, it's a reality as far as what you're, you know, because even with what you're talking about with the defunding the police and, and removing them out of schools, um, I was talking before to someone and I said, well, you know, we had police officers when I was in school, but there was a great relationship Exactly. between the officer and the students. I had a wonderful relationship with the police officer at the school. We don't need to talk about why I even had a relationship with the police officer. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> but the point is, is that I did. And, you know, but as you said, something egregious, something, you know, yeah, they have to do their job. But mm -hmm. they also help to diffuse situations. You know, they also are there. And I don't know if he was specially trained because he was an actual, you know, CPS, you know, I mean, CPD. But I was saying, aren't, why, are they not training them anymore mm -hmm. to be in the school? Because what I think that there is, this, and I do think that there should be special qualifications for them to actually be assigned to a school. And the same thing that you said, are you from this community? Or if not, do you have an upbringing similar? to the people in that community. Yes. Because I may not necessarily live, quote unquote, in this particular neighborhood, but if I grew up in that neighborhood, it doesn't matter where I live today. Right. As long as I have that particular experience. But I definitely think that there should be um, cultural re relevance or to quote the doctor, uh, that we, Dr. Bell, even though she was talking about <laughs> medical doctors, our resource officers need to be culturally competent as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Right. So. Right. Shout out to Dr. Bell, right? <laughs> but it, yeah, does, that not apply, does that not apply to every situation, though? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Most we definitely. Need, we need cultural competency as it pertains in particular, definitely in the juvenile, uh, the uh, juvenile justice system. Mm-hmm. I also think that a piece that needs to be implemented is the study of power. And in, in many environments, people who hold power don't really understand how to, hold, how to hold it and when to apply it. They apply too much or they don't apply enough power. And, and that very intricate piece in leadership is knowing how to use power. You the holder of it, your decisions is power. You know, it results in the use of power because if, if a decision is made to put people out of school, that's a that's a that's a powerful that's a position of power decision right there. And in leadership, mm -hmm. people feel because I have a title, I can rule how I want to rule, and that's in, that's not right. You can't. 
you have to take consideration how your decisions or your actions affect those that you are supposed to lead. And in a, in a certain environments, those who are in leadership position may not be, it may not be reinforced to them that you're in a leadership position. If you're an officer in a school, you're in a leadership position. And you're one that holds some sense of power. So run around slamming children, because I actually had to deal with that situation with an officer slamming my child. And my child is small. And I understand the use of force. I really had to tell him at that time I was an officer. I was like, now I understand the use of force. Now, whatever use of force you use on my child, I want you to try to use it on me. You know, it was so, as an officer, I, I was an officer for seven years and I was trained on the use of force. Every officer is trained on the use of force. So when you're dealing with people, you have to understand how impactful that is in so many environments. They're not really reinforcing proper leadership or the power, the power used by leadership. Agreed. So what, what would you say the flaws in the criminal justice are? Those ones that you feel that affect uh, your ability to, to, act, to act out or to administer restorative justice or make it harder? I think what we really need to do is so much data that's out here. And so you have those who, who go off of um, qualitative data, then you have those who go off quantitative data, and then mixed methods. And so when you think about restorative justice, there's really never a one-size-fits-all approach to the process. And so I'm as much as I am a numbers girl, I remove numbers when I'm in this restorative process because I don't want to start seeing people as a number. I want to see people for who they are as people. And so one of the things I think we really need to sit down and do is re in order to start dismantling the juvenile justice system, because what happens is that the connection to the schools and the prison are getting, are getting closer and closer together to the point they look like they're one and the same. If I was to take, take two screens and show you a school building and show you a prison building. If I was to show you a school hallway and a prison hallway, if I was to show you the, uh, the jail uniform and the school uniform, like I can, we could go on and on about how the similarities are so um, one and the same at this point in time, that that's one way to start dismantling. Like we, we need to have our children be part of the conversations. I've sat at one too many tables to make decisions about children when no children were present. That's one thing. Two, we have so many. It's, I remember when I was growing up, you had gangs. You had the, the BDs, the GDs, the Vice Lords, the Blackstones, but you also had a leader. Now we have factions. And so the factions, we have over 260-something factions in the South Suburban Cook County area that if I live on one area, on one end, if I live on the east corner of the block, we don't mess with the dudes or the girls on the west corner of the block. And so there is no leadership and there's no guidance. And that's because we have broken homes. We have broken mindsets. This is be able to, what needs to happen is the town hall means each town is going to be, do something different. But one of the things I would love to see is to get rid of these different, um, the, the way that we find parents for actions that when we were younger, I think my mom probably would be in jail right about now because I was a hothead. And I, and I think what happens, we really need to get to a point where start looking up, you know, when kids come to me, I'm like, man, I remember when I did that because some people have become so far removed from their past, baby, we all did something. The only difference between those who get caught is those that get caught and those who don't. Listen. <laughs> <laughs> 
like we all laughing on this one. <laughs> if we can show a, a sense of compassion and empathy to start, like we don't need the fines. Like when they're the like you said, when there's moments of their uh the egregious actions of others, that's different. But when we're talking about little things that could be resolved, a lot of times we gotta stop saying, like, we need the village to come back. We can't lo- like I remember. By the time I would walk home from my school building to home, my mama was already made aware. I've already been chastised by Ms. Jacobs, <laughs> Mr. Williams. And it was, it was no sense of, there was no such thing as like, that's my child. You don't have no business saying anything to mm-hmm. her. And that's one of the issues that we have. The village has to take care of the village. And so when we start to look at our children, because now think about it. If all of our children, for every little thing that they do, they're being chastised and not, they're not being able to show how to effectively use their voice, because when someone hollers and screams, that's, that's their anger. That's their frustration. And I'm not saying it's right, but how are we going to show them? It's easy to tell somebody what they need to do, but are we going to show them how to effectively use their voice when there's a conflict or when there's a confrontation or when someone rubbed you the wrong way? How do you confront those issues? And so one of the things, one is we have to remove those fines. Two, we need to change the curriculum of the schools. Like we, like mm-hmm. I've been homeschooling my, what my youngest daughter way before COVID happened. And it wasn't something I signed up to do it was because I didn't like the way she was being taught. Something happened in the school building. She witnessed uh, her, one of her friends get stabbed eight times in class. In class? In class. Now, here it is as a mother who has been restored because the old me has, you know, lived a crazy life that my older children saw things that I wish they never saw. But that was because you have to understand that the the decisions I make don't just affect me. They affect those who are connected to me. And so now here it is. Once restoration and God came into my life, my last my three, my last three children have been raised totally different than my oldest two. But at the same time, here it is. I've sheltered my children, my youngest girl, to make sure she does not have to live the life that my oldest two live and then turn around and go to school where she's supposed to be safe and witness something like this. So now she has to go to therapy. Now she's being homeschooled. And what I appreciate about homeschooling her is I've developed a curriculum that I think is pretty good. Like it's me having to take ownership. And you know, we can't, and at the same time, I'm not saying that I don't love the school I don't, or the, the people that are in the school. It's just not that that's not a fit for her. But how is it that I can help assist? Because these are some things that I realized that with my child, I was not paying attention to because I was relying totally on the school to make sure that her academic needs were being met. But I have to take a step back and hold myself accountable because that's not just their sole responsibility. It's my responsibility too. So now I can come from another sense of empathy and compassion when I'm talking to parents about remote learning. Like, how can I best help you so you can help your child? Because when we're talking about helping our children, we also have to help the people that's connected to them as well. How do we bring more awareness uh, about restorative justice? Being able to share the stories. Like, I live my life by the mantra, a journey not shared is a soul not healed. Like, here I am, I'll be 40 years old, and I face death mm, approximately three to four times in my life. I've been raped. I've been sexually assaulted. I, um, I've been stabbed. I've been domestic violence, cervical cancer survivor. I've been homeless. I've had a poverty mindset. I've tried to commit suicide twice in my lifetime. So here I am as a walking miracle. You know, a lot of times people think a miracle is supposed to be something that's, un, you know, it's not, it's not obtainable or something that you can never see or something that you can never feel. But the people, we, Black people, are miracles. Mm. 
And I know for myself, I'm a miracle. So I'm always sharing my story. I'm, 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 I'm open and I'm transparent about my journey. And I'm not ashamed of the things that I used to be ashamed of. People don't like talking about suicide. People don't like talking about that ill mindset. People don't like them talking about depression and being bipolar. They're like, oh, gee, she crazy. No, it's more to it than that. There's a why. And until you can build a relationship to understand the why, we're going to continue to call Shaniqua crazy. We're going to continue to call JoJo and them off the, they off the chain. Joe, they, they tripping. They finna blow the neighbor. You know, I go on and on about all the different language I hear, but there's always a why to it. I do have to ask you, Shaniqua, what was the light bulb moment for you? What, when, did, when did that switch happen? On my 26th. Yeah, I, I thank you. For me, it was my 26th birthday. So for those who don't know, and I'm like I said, I'm transparent about my story, wrote a book about it and everything. Um, my last child is a result of rape by my ex-husband. And so I had to come to the realization that I tried having an abortion before. Like, see, this is stuff people don't like talking about. After I had my, my third child, I developed cervical cancer. And so I was told that I had to make a decision when I got pregnant with my fourth child to either abort the child or just take a risk. And so I tried to have an abortion, make a long story short, she's still here, child number four. And then after that, I decided I wanted to leave my husband because of domestic violence. And I was like, man. And then one day, an unfortunate situation happened where I was raped by him. And then um, on November 19, 2006, I went into labor. And in my mind, I was so depressed because I'm like, I'm getting ready to have a rape baby. That's those were the words. That's how I felt about the situation. And because of the failed abortion, I decided I was going to keep her because I'm like, it seemed like everything that other people get away with, I can't. I've never mm -hmm. heard of people having an abortion and still pregnant. Or in my, the people in my circle, I've never heard of something like that, right? So my aha moment came November 19th, I'm in labor. I'm going, I'm in labor for three days from November 19th to November 22nd. November 22nd is my birthday. And so on the 19th, I go into labor. I'm in the hospital by myself because no one, my family was just not prepared uh, mentally because this was a lot to take on. One, it's my fifth child. I'm the baby of my family. And now that people are starting to learn the the uh the way this baby came about into conception it really rubbed people the wrong way not because they were angry and didn't want to be there for me but it hurts and so then you got the legal piece to it so my aha moment make a long story short i'm laying there i'm they doing everything they can they reduce my labor they induce the reduction because that didn't work my blood pressure went up my vitals weren't right um they tried seaweed strips that didn't you know stuff i never even heard of but seaweed strips are supposed to help open you up. But what happened was I went into labor, but I wouldn't dilate because of all the surgeries I had the year prior to the cervical cancer that I had built up so much scar tissue that I was in labor, but I wouldn't dilate. And so as I laid there, I remember them, um, we went from laughing and joking because they was trying to keep me, you know, uplifted through this whole process. And what happened was my vitals started to drop and I went from talking like perfectly fine to not being like, I could barely, I could, I could feel me trying to say something, but the words were just forming and coming out of my mouth. And it went from talking clearly to mumbling. And then I remember growing up in the church, cause I'm a preacher's kid too, that they was like, when you get ready to go home, the glory, you're going to see the light. And I didn't see any light. I saw darkness. I got scared. Cause I'm like, I do not want to go to hell. Like, I know I've been, you know, turned up. I, I just, this is not, this ain't it. And so what ended up happening was, as I laid there, I was like, God, look, I'm, I'm scared. I couldn't even think of the sinner's prayer. Now, as a preacher's kid, I know I could probably quote any scripture you, you throw out there, but even the devil knew the scriptures, right? But that's a whole nother situation. 
And so as I laid there and I laid there dying, I'm going cold and I'm like not understanding. I can't, I can't even comprehend anything. I hear them talking. I see their mouths moving. I went from saying a sentence prayer to really in my mind. And I was mumbling, but I know what I was saying. I was like, God, save me from me. Don't save me from my ex-husband. Don't save me from a broken mindset, a poverty mindset. Save me from me. Help me be who I need to be so I can raise my own children. I don't want them to be in a system. I don't want my mother to have to raise them. Help me, help me to thrive. Help me to live. I don't want to just be in survival mode because that's not living. That's not living whatsoever. So just save me. When I came to, I had an emergency C-section, gave birth to a healthy baby girl. I named her Sanaa Grace. That was my aha moment. And ever since then, like, I even remember, like, some of the things I was saying as I was going under the knife, like, I know I might turn up every once in a while, I might curse somebody out, but I still love you, God, like, just but still save me, <laughs> save me every day, and I, I want to do what you have me to do. Whatever, I, if I make it past this point, I know that I'm supposed to live to give you the glory. And so ever since then, I've been rocking and rolling. I'll be 40 this year. Uh, Amen. That's a powerful testimony. Amen. That's a powerful testimony. And this sister said, help change me. Help save me from me. That's a very powerful prayer right there. Because you know that takes us to our challenges. Woo! We're going to start self-accountability. That's where we're going to start. So our challenge number one is community. We must confront the issue head on. We like to try to run around from it. We want to try to put blank. Let's confront it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, challenge number two, as our sister stated, heal, heal, heal from generational trauma. We must. What we mm-hmm. are carrying, we have to release it. We got to let it go. We have to address it. We have to confront it. That's the only way we're going to truly heal. Challenge number three is confront those who have offended us. And we need to also confront those who we have offended. Mm-hmm. It goes both ways. Thank you for sharing that. We have to, our challenge number four is we have to identify safe spaces. We need those safe spaces in our community. We need places where we can go and express our hurt, express our pain without being judged. We need those safe spaces. Challenge number five, ask yourself the why. I love that, the why. We don't do that. That's not something that we do, but we need to do it today. Our six challenges, as we talked, accountability is important. Listeners, we have to learn to hold ourselves accountable first and don't hold those around us accountable. And the last challenge, as our sister so eloquently stated, we need to bring back the village. We need to bring our village back. No longer, you can't say nothing to me because that, that that's my child, that ain't your child. Your child mm-hmm. is my child. Your mother is my mother. Your sister is my sister. Your brother yes. is my brother. We have to get back to that. We can no longer have this mindset that can't nobody t- talk to us, can't nobody judge us. We need to know the difference between the two. So thank you so much for coming on. And this is where we give you the opportunity to share what uh, you want to share with our audience as far as what you're working on, where they can find you, how to locate you. Go ahead, the floor is yours. No problem. So currently a few things I have going on is um, today, I, well, this week I'm starting cohort three of my restorative justice one-on-one course that's all online. You know, I understand COVID-19 has really forced us in many ways to learn how to 
do things virtually. And so the course is a four-week course. Um, I'll be conducting my next cohort um, starting next month. So you can definitely reach out to me at ShaniquaJones.com, and that's S-H-A-N-I-Q-U-A-J-O-N-E-S.com um, if you're interested in signing up for my Restorative Justice 101 course. Also, I have a women's circle, which is basically a virtual safe space for women that if you're interested, same thing, you can reach out to me uh, via email as well at purplepath at ShaniquaJones.com, or you can contact me at 773-708-2041. Um, and a few other things I got going on. I'm doing a book series with um, one of my best friends, uh, Mrs. Stephanie Pearson Davis of It Could Be Your Kid, which is an anti-bullying and anti-racism uh, or nonprofit organization. And so what we are doing right now, we're actually reading um, How to Be an Anti-Racist by a Dr. Ephraim X. Kennedy. And so what we're doing, we're doing weekly Zooms with uh, any participant and it's been for free. Um, we're doing weekly book series to discuss different chapters. You know, we have our chapter reading. So right now we're covering chapter three through six and we're having our discussions about that. And once this book series ends, then we'll be going on to a new book. And I think our next book may be the Unapologetic Guide to Black Mental Health, Navigate an Unequal System, Learn Tools for Emotional Wellness and Get the Help You Deserve. And so all the work that we're doing, it comes around full circle. If we're not doing busy work, we're doing the work of work of the people, the work of God, to make sure that we are providing accurate and effective uh, services and being as professional as possible and giving people safe spaces that they need, especially in a time like now, you know, uh, you know, everyone's talking about COVID-19 as uh, the, probably one of the de deadliest viruses, but I, I don't agree with that. I think the deadliest virus is racism. And so... Ooh being able to dismantle and have discussions about the things we typically don't want to talk about with people that don't look like us. Hmm. Okay. All right. Now, if y'all don't, if you don't know, you didn't know the sister before, you know her now. <laughs> Dr. Shanika Jones. I love Thank you. you. Thank you so much for coming on. and sharing. You will have to bring you back on. Definitely will have to bring you back on. Hey, I'll be ready. You be ready. Got a, so much wealth of knowledge. And also, I want to thank you, too, for sharing your own personal struggles, your own personal stories. It takes a lot of courage, a lot of bravery and healing to do that. So thank you so much. Thank to you. our listeners, thank you for tuning in on every episode, supporting us and showing us so much love. Until next time, peace and blessings. Thanks for listening to another episode of Conversations with the Royal Impress. Tune in next week for another enlightening conversation. For more information on the Royal Impress, please visit the website royalimpress.org. You can also follow the Royal Impress on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Conversations with the Royal Impress is a subsidiary of the Royal Impress organization. All rights reserved.